0: I'm Doug Storm. Welcome to Interchange. Today, on Independence Day, your independent community radio station in Bloomington, Indiana, presents Pete Seeger, Plain and Complicated. It's hard to know where to begin, but let's start with one of the most popular songs of the mid-20th century, the Weaver's rendition of Goodnight Irene by Hudy Ledbetter, better known as Leadbelly. This is a song which seems a kind of simple artifact of pop music, but how we understand the tradition of folk songs which are nearly always covers or appropriations of music often born of deep suffering is deeply complicated. But that's for you to chew on as that particular critique is beyond the scope of this program. Pete Seeger died in 2014 at the age of 94, a cultural icon and a so-called consensus hero. But the hero was once also a pariah. Seeger's was a long life of constant work and activism. He is for many the quintessential folk singer, and his left politics goes hand-in-hand with that reputation. And it is because of those politics that Seeger has perhaps been as widely vilified as praised. I'm tempted to offer a sketch of this life at the outset, but even a sketch would take up too much of our program, and our guests will cover some of this territory in any event. Those guests are in this order. Ron Cohen, co-editor of the Pete Seeger Reader. Rob Rosenthal, co-editor, along with his son Sam, of Pete Seeger in his own words. Lita Schubert, author of a new children's book about Seeger called Listen, How Pete Seeger Got America Singing, Robbie Lieberman, author of My Song Is My Weapon, and her father, Ernie Lieberman, a singer-songwriter who played now and again with Pete Seeger and produced a landmark album of songs for peace in 1954 called Goodbye, Mr. War, and Gary Fine, author of Sticky Reputations, The Politics of Collective Memory in Mid-Century America. I'm going to enlist the first guest you'll hear, Ron Cohen, as something like a co-host for the program, Ron stressed that Pete Seeger was a supreme organizer, from rallies to music journals to newsletters to hootenannies to anti-war protests to festivals to river cleanup, an inexhaustible organizer. So let's let Ron Cohen organize this show about Pete Seeger, the great organizer. He'll keep us up to date with a kind of activity log of Pete's life as we move through the conversations with our other Pete Seeger experts. Throughout, you'll hear me reading from four of Pete's letters published in Ron and Sam Rosenthal's Pete Seeger in his own words. I've taken liberties with these and compressed them, but I don't feel the elisions alter the meaning of the text. Still, feel free to check up on me. Our first segment is with Rob Rosenthal, who will give us some sense of what communism meant to Pete Seeger, as well as to many others in the 30s and 40s. But first, Ron Cohen.
1: Stop rambling, stop your gambling. Stop staying out late at night. Go home to your wife and family. Stay there by your fireside bright.
2: I ring good night. I
3: Well, Pete, uh, this is partly a reflection of his left wing politics, but he he always wanted to get people involved and informed, other musicians, uh, plus the wider world. So this starts out when he helps organize a group called the Almanac Singers in early 1941 uh, with a couple of his friends, Lee Hayes and Millard Lampell. Uh, Woody Guthrie was part of the group. That's how they're more well known. And uh, their idea was to uh, write their own songs or do traditional songs to uh, particularly help organize uh, labor unions. And also they're involved with the peace movement because at that point, uh, the communist left was neutral as World War II had broken out. So he helped start this group called the Almanac Singers. They do some albums, uh, but then they were blacklisted uh, by 1943. Uh, They mostly performed for labor unions and uh, left-wing groups. They did a a few albums, uh, 78 albums, but then they broke up and Pete went into the army and he wound up at the end of World War II uh, stationed on Saipan Island in the the Pacific. But when he got out of the army uh, in late 1945, he wanted to start a new group. And so they had a a meeting at the very end of 1945 at his uh, in-laws' house in Greenwich Village and it was called People's Songs. Now, the idea behind that, which was heavily Pete's idea, was to spread topical songs, uh, particularly dealing with uh, peace, uh, World War II,
0: So, uh, Ron, there's a, there are chapters of groups called People's Songs?
3: Yes, they're all called People's Songs.
0: Okay.
3: L.A., People's Songs, Chicago. Oh, okay, okay. Uh, in Chicago, mm-hmm. Seth Sturgle, the great the, the writer.
0: Mm hmm.
4: From all of you good workers, good news to you I'll tell Of how the good old union has come in here to dwell
2: Which side are you on? Which side are you on?
4: My dad
0: became a communist at age seven. I started reading the books of Ernest Thompson Seton, the nature writer. Over the next five years, I read every one of his books. He was my guru. He held up American Indians as a role model, brave, truthful. The middle-aged Indian in Rolf in the Woods tells the 13-year-old white boy, you can read your books, but I can teach you the book of nature. I made myself a teepee, lived in it, tracked animals, and Indians shared within each tribe. If there was food, everyone ate. If there was hunger, everyone was hungry, even the learned chief and his wife and children. When I was 20, I learned that anthropologists called this tribal communism. At 13, I started reading Thoreau's Walden, then the autobiography of Lincoln Steffens, and Mike Gold's Jews Without Money. I got so interested in politics, I didn't keep up with my studies, lost my scholarship, dropped out of college, and in NYC, joined a youth workshop part of the YCL, Young Communist League. I met Woody Guthrie and we sang together for unions and for communist groups too. After WW2, I was a card-carrying member for about four years. Woody tried to join but was turned down. We both used to laugh at the long words and special definitions they tried to give out. Revisionism, said Woody, I revise myself every morning. And of course, after Khrushchev's speech in 56 detailing Stalin's anti-Semitism and other brutalities, millions of us asked ourselves, what is communism? From Pete Seeger in his own words, a letter dated November 2005. To raise your
4: pay, we'll all be awaiting till Judgment Day, we'll all be buried, gone to heaven. St. peter will be the straw boss then. Now you know you're underpaid, but the boss says you ain't. He speeds up the work till you're about to faint. You may be down and out, but you ain't beaten. You can pass out a leaflet and call him meeting, talk it over. Speak your mind. Decide to do something
0: about it. Uh, Do you think that um, maybe the book that you worked on with your son presents what might might be called a political philosophy of Pete Seeger? Yeah, I think so. Do you think you could characterize that a a little bit for us?
5: Pete always saw himself as what he called a uh, a little sea communist. So although he Uh, of course, was in the Communist Party at one point, wasn't really tied to the ideology of the Communist Party. He was interested in uh, extreme democracy Mm. uh, and meaning everyone really getting a say in all sorts of decisions. So decisions about art, decisions about the economy, decisions about politics. Everything he was about was really in spreading democracy to its this extent. So he had, uh, you know, when he was a kid, he had loved these books by Ernest Thompson Seton about Native Americans, and he was very taken with the way in which they shared everything, at least in Seton's view. Um, and he was always looking for how could you have that in an industrial society? How could you have people sharing everything? Um, you see this in his politics, in his conscious politics, but also. Completely in his art, his art was always aimed at the greatest the greatest democratic pr- practices that he could bring into being hmm.
0: so the obviously the 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 singing, the uh, concerts, the singing everywhere at all venues anywhere he could, it seemed like especially during the blacklist period, but it continued after that also uh, so in a sense is is the embodiment of a political spirit
5: yeah, and even more I think the fact that he was never interested in singing to people. He was interested in singing with people. So uh, participation was the most important thing to him. Uh, He thought it's not not as important to sing about democracy as it is to sing democratically. Hmm. It's not as important to sing about socialism as it is to sing in a socialist way, by which he meant no stars, no leaders, just everyone singing together. So that is above everything, what he was about. He thought it was more important to get people to feel their own power, whether that was singing or voting or whatever it was, than to have them absorb lessons from him. He really wasn't that interested in that. He was interested in you know, do it yourself. That's mm-hmm. it. He was an early punk.
0: <laughs> well, that's that's been the clear message throughout uh, in the conversations we we've had. Pete Seeger as a do-it-yourself champion. He wanted everybody to to pick up guitars, banjos, etc. It's interesting because obviously in this this day and age of constant back and forth, uh, constant um, demonization of one side or another, you know, um, not too long ago, and part of my journey here was was in a sense to try to counter. The conservative claims, you know, of, of Pete, Singer, Pete Seeger being, uh, you know, Stalin's songbird. Uh, you know, these things uh, I, I came to actually through uh, W W E B Du Bois and Paul Robeson, um, who also were strongly sympathetic to the Soviet Union, strongly sympathetic to, to communism uh, and unapologetic for it in many ways. Right. Uh, Seeger, as you say before, is a small C. Communist, but for a time a large C communist, I suppose, in the U.S. And I I wonder if you can help us make the distinction uh, between being a communist in the U.S. and being a uh, a, a Russian communist or a Marx uh, you know a Russian Marxist. You know, there's there's a way in which we get confused about what our
5: categories are here and what they mean. Um, you know, the Communist Party in the United States went through many twists and turns. And without uh, forcing your listeners to go through all those twists and turns, let me just say that. For a long time in the United States, the people who were most interested in racial justice, in uh, workers' rights, in uh, early feminism were the people in the Communist Party, Um, especially in the great upsurges of uh, labor in order to get unions. Uh, People don't understand, I think now, what an incredibly bloody struggle it was to get unions in the United States to achieve some sort of control on uh there was a time when corporations could do anything they wanted employers could do anything they wanted there was no welfare there was no bill of rights for workers at all um and unions were necessary in order to achieve that um so it was extremely dangerous work it was uh thankless work you were going to lose your job if employers found out you were doing it you might get killed all these things happened um And the people who were most devoted to that were people in the Communist Party because during the 30s, it looked like capitalism actually was going to fail and leave millions and millions of people starving. So people who were in that world at that time, they looked around, they thought, well, if capitalism isn't going to work as a system, what will work? And uh, the Russian Revolution had happened. It seemed like it was going to bring forth a lot of prosperity. This was a vision of another world. And um, people like Pete and W. B. Du Bois and people like that thought there are people who are telling us everything's going to be all right. And then there are people who are telling us things are really messed up and uh, it is the system of capitalism that's doing it. And that's what's led to this depression. And therefore, people like Pete threw in with the Communist Party because they seem to be the ones, as I say, workers' rights, uh, the rights of African-Americans and other minorities Uh, feminist rights. They were the ones who were on the line risking their lives. Mm So it wasn't that unusual for people at that time who had progressive ideas to throw them with the the, uh, Communist Party and therefore to be linked to the Soviet Union. Now, I think at different times, different people thought, well, I don't like what's going on in the Soviet Union, some sooner, some later. Um, In our book, we have this uh, letter. uh, I don't know if you've seen it. That's um, Pete in 1956 writes this letter to his grandchildren. He doesn't have any grandchildren yet, and he writes this letter to the future saying, this is why I'm a communist. And basically it comes down to, I think they're making a lot of mistakes, but uh, look at the alternative. The alternative is a system which doesn't seem to uh, provide for a standard of living for many people that's decent, and that's why I'm throwing in with them.
0: Are, are there uh, mentioning that letter? Are there besides that one? Perhaps are there other letters that you found most? You know, which, which were your favorites, or did you have one that stood out to you that you thought, "Man, this is this is a dynamite document."
5: Well, that one above all others, because no one had ever seen it before. We right. found it in in these files, and it said it was sealed, and mm-hmm. it said not to be opened until the death of Charles Seeger and Pete Seeger, or the year two thousand. When we brought it to Pete. He didn't remember it. <laughs> he just opened it. You know, he was in the next room. We said, "Pete, what's this?" <laughs> you know, because we were, you know, we knew we were in the files of the fifties, and a letter that was sealed and said not to be opened till the death of Charles Seeger, his father, and Pete Seeger. We thought might be pretty interesting. So he, he just opened it up and uh, started correcting the grammar in it as he usually did with these things. Uh, but yeah, uh, that was pretty amazing. We we loved the early letters. You know, there's a letter. Uh, asking his mother if he can buy a banjo, if he could have money to buy a banjo. That, that's a great one. Um, there's a letter to a nephew who's about to enlist to go off to Vietnam. Hmm. That's a pretty interesting letter. Um, Pete, I don't know. Uh, the, the thing that was so amazing about doing the work was that, so we were in uh, Pete's house in his barn and in uh, parts of his house where he, uh, he kept these things in He kept everything, everything, you know, and there were thousands and thousands and thousands of letters to Pete, all all starting Dear Pete, because everyone thought of him as a friend, even if they'd never met him. Um, People just wanted to. To talk with him and until pretty late in his life, Pete and Toshi, his wife. Responded to every one of them personally. Oh, really? So you see letters to Jimmy Carter, and then the next letter is a letter to a guy in prison, and then the next letter is to someone who's baking bread in the village, and, you know, they were completely democratic in that way, also. Right. So, so there were a lot of letters. <laughs> It was
4: on a Saturday night, and the moon was shining bright. They passed the conscription bill, and the people they did say for many miles away
0: was the president and his boys on Capitol Hill. It's time for a break. This is the Almanac Singers with the Ballad of October 16th written by Millard Lampell and off of the group's first album, Songs for John Doe. When we return, we'll hear about The Weavers, The Red Scare, and The Blacklist. Stay with us for more when Interchange returns. But
4: we won't be safe till everybody's dead. died I was sitting by her side a promising to war I'd never go but now I'm wearing cocky jeans and eating army beans and I'm told that JP Morgan loves me so I have wandered over this land a Roman working man no clothes to wear and not much food to eat but now the government puts the bill, gives me clothes and feeds me swill, gets me shot and puts me underground six feet. Oh, Franklin Roosevelt told the people how he felt. We damn near believed what he said. He said, I hate war and so does Eleanor, but we won't be safe till everybody's dead. Nothing can be wrong If it makes our country strong
0: We gotta get tough to
4: save democracy and
0: Welcome back. I'm Doug Storm on Interchange. Our show is Pete Seeger, Plain and Complicated. For a brief interlude before our station ID break, Ron Cohen tells us about the Weavers and the Blacklist. All the
4: people how he felt We damn near he said He wanted to keep doing something
3: with an organization and particularly a publication to get songs out to the wider world. So he's involved with starting a new magazine in 1950 called Sing Out.
2: Hmm. uh,
3: Published in New York City. He was not the editor of it, but he was very influential in creating Sing Out magazine, uh, which started out as a monthly initially. Mm -hmm. Uh, And was heavily uh, supporting peace, which was not popular at that time because peace was associated with the Communist Party. But at the same time, he wants to start a a, a musical organization, Uh, and so in, in 49, he gets together with.
0: one was that? Was that the Irene?
3: Well, Weemoway.
0: Oh, Weemoway, okay. Uh,
3: and uh, St. Ed St. 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 Uh, they have a, a lot of major hits. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, and Lead Billy's Goodnight Irene was
0: a oh,
2: right, right. huge one.
3: Mm-hmm. Lead Billy just died in 49,
2: unfortunately. Hmm, Okay. And
0: He's he's not attracted to the trappings of stardom.
3: No, he hated it. Okay.
0: How did the Weavers come back if they were blacklisted in those in those two years?
3: Well, you could perform at venues. hmm So their uh, manager, was Harold Leventhal, tried to book them at Town Hall in New York, a wonderful hall. Mm-hmm.
4: the come where all our friends will find us with the dancers there. Zena, Zena, join the celebration.
0: This is Doug Storm on Interchange. We'll take a quick break with the Weavers' hit "Zena, Zena, Zena" from 1950. More on Pete Seeger when we return.
4: you hear the music playing in the city square? Send nuts and nuts and nuts and the come where all our friends will find us with the dancers there. Send nuts and nuts can't you hear the music playing in the city square? Send nuts and nuts and the come where all our friends will find us with the dancers there.
2: Send nuts and nuts.
0: Welcome back to Interchange. Again, that was the Weavers' 1950 hit, Zena, Zena, Zena. Our next segment features children's book author Lita Schubert. She's just published Listen How Pete Seeger Got America Singing. First, a snippet from Pete Seeger's letter to his grandchildren discovered by Rob and Sam Rosenthal among his Barn Full of Correspondents. We'll also hear Seeger's Where Have All the Flowers Gone during the segment. From Pete Seeger in his own words, a letter to my grandchildren, dated 1956. I still feel that the basic Marxist analysis of history is correct, and I'll stick with Russia and China, too, in spite of their mistakes. After all, American democracy has made undemocratic errors, too. Washington's troops forced the deportation of thousands of citizens just because they were Tories during the Revolution. Later, these troops suppressed the Shays' Rebellion. In 1812, American troops sacked and burned Toronto needlessly. And of course, slavery and Jim Crow have been a great blot on our life. Yet, taken all in all, I think American life and thought and culture have been and will be a wonderful influence in the history of the world. And I believe that Russia and China will also be. If I deplore Hungary, I also deplore America's past actions in the Philippines or Nicaragua or, more recently, Guatemala. But I'll stick with America because I love her. And with the communist states because I admire their achievements, too. Being a communist has helped me, I believe, to be a better singer and folklorist and a more selfless citizen. I can't say so openly, unfortunately, at this period. Thus, this letter must not be opened for many years. Otherwise, I would be hard put to earn a living for the family, and more important, it would put great hardships on my wife and children in causing them to be ostracized from their neighbors and friends.
4: This old man, he plays one, he plays knick-knack on my thumb. Knick-knack, paddy give a dog a bone, this old man came rolling home. This old man, he plays too. He plays knick-knack on my shoes.
0: So uh, your book, which is a children's book, it's uh, Listen, How Pete Seeger Got America Singing. It's roughly 20 pages or so long, except maybe accepting the author's note and the resource pages. Uh, and Pete Seeger lived for 94 years. And uh, what, what is it? I mean, how did you go about thinking, I have 20 pages. What am I going to do here?
6: Well, first of all, when you're writing a picture book these days, I don't think in terms of pages. I think in terms of words, hmm. and they really like you to have fewer than a thousand words. Oh my heavens! Fact, I I know, and ideally fewer than six hundred words. But I didn't get, I didn't manage to achieve that. Hmm. So it's a question of uh, telling a story and making it into a story that has something that will appeal to, to young children and something that will appeal. To the adults who might be reading it to them, and and something that stays honest and authentic and true to Pete's life. So I couldn't leave out the blacklist and Huac, and something that um, you know satisfies me and doesn't doesn't go too far afield from the Pete that I knew. Hmm. So it's not easy. It's not <laughs> easy. It'd be easier to write for grownups. <laughs> <laughs> but, I wanted children to know about p well, so. that is
0: a, a shot. At, uh, I had no idea that that was that, that was your your sort of outer limit on on the picture book huh? a thousand yeah. words. Wow, that's a blog post,
6: yeah. <laughs> But it took me a really long, much longer time than writing a blog I'm quote.
0: sure it did. Yeah, those, <laughs> those limits require you uh, really, really considering what you're doing and how to, how to convey it. Um, and it, yeah. I, I, I will point out that that wasn't um, the part that I enjoyed seeing, obviously, about the, the HUAC, the House Un-American Activities Committee. Um, and and pointing that out, you know, what, what happened for Pete there. Can you tell a little bit about that, that particular part of Pete's life?
6: Sure. And, you know, I have on my website a link to his 1,800 pages of FBI files, but Mm. it's very easy to find his testimony. And it's absolutely chilling to read the whole testimony because they were just, they hounded the poor man. They were so, they were impossible, those Mm. people, Mr. Tavener and the other members of HUAC. And I felt that it had to be included because, of course, it was important. The McCarthy hearings and HUAC really Uh, Reached their evil tentacles through the 50s and changed the lives of many, many people, not Mm -hmm. just the Hollywood 10 that we all know about, but many people in Washington and around the country. And it changed Pete's life. He had to go more or less underground for many years. He had to um, sing in colleges and, I mean, not had to, but Mm -hmm. he made a life singing in colleges and coffee houses and camps and schools. And he actually had a profound effect doing that because he reached a lot of young people that he might not otherwise have reached if he were singing in the big ta- bigger venues and he created a whole cadre of young people who were ready to hit the streets in the sixties so um, mm-hmm. but his testimony was is really I have it I have it in front of me and uh you know here's one of the things he said when when they were hounding him and they kept trying to ad- get him to admit that he had sung at Communist Party venues. And they asked him over and over and over again, in as many ways as they could figure out. And he took the First Amendment, which was unusual. Most people who were testifying took the Fifth Amendment, which is the right against self-incrimination. But he took free speech. And he said, I have sung for Americans of every political persuasion, and I am proud and I never refuse to sing to an audience, no matter what religion or color of their skin or situation in life. I have sung in hobo jungles and I have sung for the Rockefellers, and I am proud that I have never refused to sing for anybody. That is the only answer I can give along that line. Hmm. And it took a tremendous amount of courage back then to just stand up to those frightening people who had power over your life.
4: Little boxes on the hillside, little boxes made of ticky-tacky, little boxes, little boxes, little boxes boxes, all the same. This
0: is Doug Storm on Interchange. We're exploring the long life, politics, and music of Pete Seeger, plain and complicated. Happy Independence Day. They're all made out of ticky-tacky, and they all look just the same Pete Seeger really sort of was constantly involved in in performing all over the place, like you say, from children 's uh singing to children at camps to going to colleges and singing and and as much out of was it as much out of necessity because, as you say, it was blacklisted for a time, and he found a way to i guess hit the streets and make a difference there
6: right yeah well, that 's what he did mm-hmm.
0: in your book you I think you write something about making. Uh, making people a little, a little bit more like Pete is kind of what, yeah. what, what was going on yeah. there as well.
6: Well, you know, there were a lot of people in the 50s who were sort of looking around for something to give their lives meaning. It was not, we we think of the 50s as a time of conformism and uh, the the American dream. But for people growing up then, there was a search for a kind of meaning and a kind of cultural authenticity that they couldn't find. And when Harry Smith's anthology, the anthology of American folk music, hit the streets from folkways right around then, it changed a lot of people's lives. And they began to hear a kind of music that they were seeking. And they began to buy a lot of old records and, and listen to old music. And Pete and his family, Mike Seeger and Peggy Seeger, were among the leaders in, well, especially Mike. But, um, and then Pete wrote How to Play the Five-String Banjo. And a lot of people went off and bought inexpensive banjos and learned. sat in their bedrooms listening <laughs> and listening to Pete and learning to play the banjo and then meeting up in venues where they could get together with friends and play music. And all of a sudden there was this whole army of kids who were playing music and folk music and seeing, looking beneath the words and finding that the words meant things and that they meant things that they hadn't really thought about before. And Pete was teaching them those songs. And they learned more and more about unions and about racial injustice. And, you know, if there hadn't been music, I can't imagine the civil rights movement would ever have been as successful as it was. Mm. People sang in jail. They sang to keep themselves going on on peace lines in rain and snow. They sang all the time. And Pete was always there.
0: Being an activist. Uh, it was a way of life for Pete Seeger, as much just to uh, get out and continue to perform, but also encourage others to perform right this is absolutely this is a key issue in, in 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 his life it seems to me to engage people in their own lives through music, song, and community
6: absolutely and he did this thing you know where he got everybody to sing, and people would say oh i can 't sing and he just didn 't put up with that and <laughs> I I have in the book the way he raised his arms and got everybody to sing in four-part harmony, but he did that after he couldn't sing anymore. Mm. And I was, I saw him in, the last time I saw him live was in Lebanon, New Hampshire, in, I don't remember, about, maybe about four or five years before, maybe four years before he died. Mm -hmm. And uh, he couldn't sing at all, and it didn't matter. The entire audience was singing in four-part harmony. (laughs) How did he do that? You know, I don't know. Nobody mm. knows how he did that. He had a charisma, he had a he had something. Mm-hmm. He had a soul and a heart that allowed him to do that. Mm. And you know, singing is really good for you. Singing, and I don't mean just physically. I mean it lifts the spirit right. and it makes you want to get out and do things. Mm-hmm. And my wish is that one of the wishes I have for this book is that people will get off their cell phones and they'll get out there and they'll find their old guitars and their old banjos or they'll go by them and they'll sing with their kids and they'll sing those good old union songs and they'll sing songs that and they'll and it'll show them also that one person can really make a difference
0: Mm. Pete did, and, and, and it reminded me of, of Paul Robeson in this way, too, was that he sang folk songs from other cultures, you know, is very much yes. into international music and international singers and folk songs as well. Um, this is something, again, that has been sort of derided by a lot of cultural commentators is that the uh, U.S. in particular does not look beyond its borders, right, does not learn about other cultures very well. And this is something that Pete Seeger tried to do, right, and tried to share
6: absolutely he went all over the world and brought back music from all over the world you know i've thought about this a lot because of the issues of cultural appropriation and Mm. i've wondered what he would say now about and whether he would feel any different about bringing back music from all over but boy i learned all those songs in different languages Mm. i learned how to sing everybody loves saturday night in about 40 languages and i can still do it and and i learned so, I mean, every song he would sing with the weavers in a different language, we'd all learn. And it taught us a lot about not just language, but about musical intervals and sound and respect for different cultures, um, the way in which they put together songs. And I think it was really important. And I think it honored those cultures in a way that we really need to Where do.
4: Where have all the flowers gone? Long time passing where have all the flowers gone long time ago where have all the flowers gone the girls have picked them everyone oh when will you ever learn Oh, when will you ever learn? Where have all the young girls gone? Long time passing Where have all the young girls gone? Long time ago Where have all the young girls gone? They've taken husbands, everyone. Oh, when will you ever learn? Oh, when will you ever learn? Where have all the young men gone? Long time passing. Where have all the young men gone? Long time ago, where have all the young men gone? They're all in uniform, oh, when will we ever learn?
0: Oh, when will we ever learn? The Hudson River cleanup, which, uh, again, is another sort of another phase in Pete's life, right? Like uh, uh, where um, another way in which Pete Seeger made a difference uh, in maybe a surprising way, you know, building what he built a sloop, a 19th century sloop and said, we can do this together. We can clean it up. Um, Another way that he showed us the way to do things that was that was not just about, you know, playing a banjo. It's about how to get engaged.
6: Yeah, huge difference. Let me read that little part in the book because yeah. it says it. I think it just says it so, if I quote myself, so um, mm-hmm. effectively, it's like this is what a person can do. Mm-hmm. Um, Pete and his wife Toshi built a log cabin overlooking the Hudson River. That mighty river had been poisoned, factories had dumped chemical waste in it for years. So once again, Pete went to work. People laughed you can't do that all by yourself, they said. And he couldn't. But when he sailed the Great Slope Clearwater, they all came to see it. Guess what? They left caring about that river and then they went to work too. It wasn't long before people could swim there. If anybody asks you where in the world is the most important place, tell them right where you are, Pete said. Naturally, he made up songs about it. (laughs) And I think that's sort of epitomizes who he was Mm -hmm. you know work where you are think globally act locally Mm -hmm. and he started thinking about that back in the late 1960s Mm -hmm. and he went off and he sort of saw this sloop and he thought oh you know we could maybe do this and he went all over the place trying to find somebody who could build it and he found somebody in maine who liked the idea ironically enough he was he had to not sail on it all the time because Uh, some of the backers felt that his communist associations would not allow as much fundraising as they hoped would happen. Hmm. So he kind of stepped back from it a little bit, but that didn't affect the success of the boat. I mean, and it's still sailing. And in fact, last week, I gave some money to Clearwater so that it could sail down to Washington and try to uh, reverse Trump's idiotic climate (laughs) change policy.
2: Yeah.
6: And, uh, they had to turn back because of storms and floods, hmm. but uh, they will try again. That's so the cool. Clearwater is still out there fighting.
0: Wow, that's cool. But, you know, okay. if
6: Trump reverses the climate laws that were put in place with hmm. much activity, then the Hudson will become polluted again.
0: Hmm. Well, you know what I like most about this, and and what I've sort of really enjoyed about uh, thinking about Pete Seeger is 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 trying to understand a communal way of encouraging. Um, agency, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Again, Uh it's not, it's not important that I do it. It's important that we do it together and that we Mm -hmm. can, we all have the ability to be agents in this situation. And, uh, you know, music may be the best way to do that, the best way that we gather each other together.
6: I like that. And music has tremendous power. I mean, look all over the world, music has power.
4: Sailing down my dirty stream
0: Still I love it And I'll keep the dream It's time for a break. This is My Hudson Dirty Day. Stream, written by Pete Though Seeger about the Hudson River. More on Pete Seeger when Interchange returns. the Hudson
4: River will once again run clear It starts high in the mountains of the north Crystal clear and icy trickles forth with just a few floating wrappers of chewing gum, dropped by some hikers to warn of things to come at Glens Falls five thousand honest hands work at the consolidated paper plant. Five million gallons of waste a day Why should we do it Any other way Down the valley One million toilet chains Find my Hudson So convenient place to drain And each little city says Who me? Do you think that sewage plants come free Out in the ocean they say
0: the water's clear Welcome back. I'm Doug Storm on Interchange. This Independence Day special is about Pete Seeger, plain and complicated. We'll highlight a father-daughter pair in this segment. Ernie Lieberman will tell us about what he learned from knowing Pete Seeger and playing music with him. And Robbie Lieberman, author of My Song Is My Weapon, will tell us about communism absent the confusion and demonization of party affiliation. First, Ron Cohen catches up on Pete as a promoter of topical songs in the magazine Broadside, then Seeger's own ideas about folk songs and fascism.
4: My Hudson River and my country will run clear He wants to promote more topical songs,
3: political. Mm-hmm,
2: mm-hmm.
3: And Sing Out Magazine, which he's still very involved with in the early 60s, is not doing a lot of that, although the editor, Erwin sober is very left-wing politically. But he's doing more traditional songs. So, uh, Pete has another idea. Let's do a topical song magazine. And he got that idea in England. He was in England and there's a topical song magazine there. So he came back and he, uh, and another person who wanted to do this was Malvina Reynolds, a great topical songwriter. So he, so, Pete and Malvina encouraged a couple in New York City in 1962 to start a topical song magazine, which was called Broadside hmm. Magazine. Uh, and the uh, editors were Sis Cunningham and her husband, Gordon Friesen. So that, that was very important. And that was the first magazine to publish Bob Dylan. Hmm. And everybody else, every other, Tom Paxton and Phil Oaks and Malvina and Pete, a lot of Pete's songs appeared in it. These are all new songs, uh, dealing with all kinds of issues. And Broadside went, in fact, through the 60s, through the 70s, and into the 80s, Hmm. even. And they put out songbooks and so forth. So that was one of Pete's uh, real uh, pride and joys, was uh, Broadside Magazine, and encouraging people to write their own songs and, and submit their own songs. This is what he did uh, for people's songs in the Walls Campaign. Send your songs in. Everybody write songs. Mm-hmm. Send them in. Don't, don't depend on uh, commercial songwriters or people you've heard of. Uh, do it yourself. Mm-hmm. And they did this in the 40s and they're doing it again now in the 60s.
4: Come fill up your glasses, set yourself down I'll tell you a story of somebody's town It isn't too near and it's not far away It's not a place where I'd want to stay The people are scratching all over the street Because the rabbits had nothing to eat The winter came in with a cold icy blast.
0: From Pete Seeger, in his own words. A note, circa
4: 1942.
0: Yet we should keep in mind that there are several different attitudes of people listening to the songs. Does the professor recording a a ballad like it for the same reason as does the old mountain woman who sings it to him? Does the Café Society patron like the Golden Gate Quartet for the same reason that the Arkansas sharecropper does? Hitler, too, likes folk music. German propaganda is full of buxom Bavarian maidens singing old Tyrolean carols, and Benito's fascist youth hiking organization publishes many gay traditional Italian melodies in its songbook. Where does the difference lie between the Democrats' and the Fascists' love of folk music? The answer, to me, seems to lie in the fact that the Fascists like to think of a great, simple and credulous folk, with their superstitions and their myths and their native culture, whereas the Progressive feels proud that the people, of which he is a part, have produced art of such great truth and and lasting reality. Furthermore, the fascist emphasizes the quaint and picturesque, the static and therefore dying side, while the progressive responds most keenly to the expanding militant side, the old song which rings with present-day significance, and the contemporary ballad. For example, The farmer's wife who sang me an old ballad her father taught her does not think herself picturesque any more than you or I do. She thought it was a beautiful song, too, and it helped remind her of the old man who was dead some 20 years. And I think Ellie Sigmeister's American Ballad Singers recording of Springfield Valley, where his singer tries to imitate the accents of the Kentucky ballad singer, is the most reactionary piece of music Sigmeister was ever responsible for. That record is a farce, really. I guess he didn't know anybody. Better. It would insult the farmer's wife I spoke of. The people
4: are scratching
0: all over the street Because the rabbits had nothing
2: to eat
4: All through the country and all through the town, there wasn't a dog or a cat to be found. The fleas asked each other, now where can we stay? They've been on the people from then till this day. People are scratching all over the street because the rabbits... We've
0: had a couple of shows on this program about protest music, but trying to understand po- political music, political songs, protest songs, uh, you know, how to define them appropriately if they are calls to action, things of that nature. It becomes kind of a, a tangled knot trying to understand is this music political? Does it does it achieve any kind of action, right? Uh, uh, and how we define what is um, political versus what is cultural. The political aspect of this music uh, kind of went away, but the cultural aspect seemed very influential. And so I wanted to ask you as much as anything else, how how do we parse those two things? You know, what makes something political, what makes something culturally influential?
7: I, I find it hard to separate those.
0: Mm-hmm.
7: In the U.S., uh, politics often comes in the <laughs> realm of culture. So I, the distinction is hard for me to make in some sense. And when you think about the songs that were meant to be political, uh, I think early on they were very important to the social movements that they were part of, and they brought people together in that way. They didn't, you know, literally change laws and governments and so on, but they helped people think in different ways and then feel a sense of unity uh, about the issues that they cared about. So when that Spreads to the culture, and I think what was most important about that music from the old left was bringing political ideas into the broader culture through songs.
0: Mm. So uh, Pete Seeger uh, is is in that tradition uh, almost entire. I mean, really, uh, that's that's what he comes out of, right? The old left, surely. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so in particular what is their relationship Pete Seeger, the Communist Party other um, singers, performers uh, literary artists of the day as well and their relationship to the Communist Party at the time
7: I think they saw themselves as part of a broader movement I think focusing on the party doesn't always uh, help us understand the world they were in mm-hmm. so there was a broad movement for social change that in the 1930s gave people the idea that there might be better alternatives during times of depression. Mm. They thought that that movement would change the world. Mm. I think that some people have called it the glue that held the movement together. There's a lot of metaphors people use, um, but it's helped people feel the emotional attachment as well as the intellectual attachment to a broader movement for social change.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. It's one of those things we we easily forget in this era. It's a long, long time ago, and it's easy to forget the the context of the time. It's easy enough to say things like, uh, that was during the Depression, or then there's World War II, and then there's uh, the Cold War. And it's easy to sort of name those time frames in some sense. That grand historical narrative we like to imagine explains everything, but it's hard to get back into those lived days.
7: Yes. It is very hard. The mistake many people make is assuming that cultural workers, Pete and his contemporaries, who had an association with the Communist Party or the Communist movement, took orders from someone at the top and, you know, wrote songs in response to the the orders they were given.
2: Mm -hmm.
7: And you have to keep reminding yourself you're dealing with creative people and artists, and they're doing their creative work they're not they're not just waiting for someone to tell them what to do and
0: how to do it right well there is the obviously the one question that I assume people continue to ask of Pete Seeger and in this particular moment you're talking about uh, you know the, the song uh, about FDR and, and and not not sending troops to the war right yes,
2: yes.
0: and so this is a general uh, conservative um, point to be made I suppose or a right-wing um Attack on Pete Seeger and his contemporaries would be like you, that they, that they are taking those particular orders.
7: I think you could safely say followed the party line in some sense, mm-hmm. but that doesn't mean you sit down with the party line in front of you and say, okay, now I'm going to write this song.
2: Right, right.
7: right. Those, are, those are the people you work with. You believe mm-hmm. um, that they're doing the right thing and that you're part of this movement that's right. going to change the world. And there were people who were. Self-conscious and uncomfortable about that, that, I think Woody Guthrie, at the same time, wrote some kind of satirical song, you know, about the lines being changed again. Mm-hmm. So there was there was some self-consciousness about it, and I think some discomfort about it, and everybody was clearly relieved when they could go back to <laughs> being uh, <laughs> songs that, that they really felt they believed in, in their hearts.
0: Right. Well, uh, Robbie, uh, you do write about the organizational culture of the American left as well. How does folk music fit into that?
7: The American left uh, wanted to discover and share what they thought of as the music of the people. Hmm. um, And they thought that that was folk music. And, of course, there's a lot of ironies and contradictions and all that that they thought this was music coming from rural folk that they were going to bring to the cities as urban folk singers. Um, And there are a lot of people who now say, you know, the real American music was jazz and they should have been focused on jazz. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But they took traditions from all over the place. And the idea, especially for Pete and others, was to teach people music of many places and many people hmm. and bring them together and, and to understand kind of the unity of humanity. And a lot of it sounds very naive in our day and age, but it was quite sincere, I think. Hmm.
0: Well, there's uh, I, I read a review of your book that focuses on, on that, that in particular. Um I'll read the little snippet that I pulled out. Folk music was adopted and adapted by the party as a means of strengthening cultural links with the American working class, furthering the development of proletarian consciousness as well as combating fascism and racism. The youthful, idealistic cultural workers like Pete Seeger and Alan Lomax, who founded People's Songs, fervently believed that catchy tunes and socially significant verses were powerful, practical weapons in the revolutionary struggle. Woody Guthrie was more than half-serious, when he emblazoned the slogan, this machine kills fascists, across the face of his guitar. More than half serious, so the machine, the music, could kill fascism.
7: Yes, they, they really believed in the power of song. Mm-hmm. That's how you brought people together and brought important issues to people and, and helped people see the importance of the things they cared about. Mm-hmm,
2: mm-hmm. Um,
7: and yeah, again, it's very hard for us to see that
4: today. Little boxes on the hillside, little boxes made of ticky-tacky little boxes, little boxes, little boxes all the same. This
0: is Doug Storm on Interchange. We're exploring the long life, politics, and music of Pete Seeger, plain and complicated. Happy Independence Day. They're all made out of
4: ticky-tacky and they all look just the same.
0: Now, I know your dad is there, and uh, Ernie, thanks for joining us. Um, can you tell us a little bit about people's songs?
8: Well, just that uh, I was a teenager and very idealistic, had been brought up in a left family and um, had been singing folk songs since my, well, since I was 11 or 12, started writing when I was 12, and uh, and uh, wrote uh, and sang songs that I believed were uh, would change the world. That's how I grew up. And um, people's songs became part of that uh, informally uh, at first, because I wasn't organizational when I was uh, 13, 14, 15. Um, and uh, I sang at Hootenannies, which were get-togethers of uh, uh Small get-togethers of, of, of people who sang folk songs. Uh, my earliest recollections are in Pete Seeger's um, basement of his MacDougal Street apartment in Greenwich Village in New York, hmm. and uh, people like Woody Guthrie and Millard Lampell, who was a writer and uh, singer, members of the Almanac Singers, who were important to that era, gave kind of uh, helped give it birth. Uh, they, they developed a uh, a booking agency in New York to book uh, folk singers and uh, other acts around uh, New York and around the country. And uh, one of one one of my heroes was Woody Guthrie, who lived in Brooklyn uh, after his sojourn from Oklahoma to California to New York. And uh, I followed him around and then uh, tried to be like he was. Hmm. Uh, hitchhike around and uh, drive across the country and stop in places and sing. And, uh, you know, so I tried to be like the people in the Depression were, because that's where this came from, mm-hmm. hitting the road and, uh, you know, with your all, uh, and becoming part of social movements because mm-hmm. they, they were so full of them then. But I didn't know, historically, I was picking it up a little at a time. I didn't have a fully formed vision was just coming to me in pieces and with the songs. And I'm sure it happened to a lot of people that way. The songs made them aware of movements and social movements and of uh, of visions of society that were different than what we had. Mm -hmm.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, in that uh, same review I was talking about earlier, um, they note that uh, Irwin Silber wrote of your album, Goodbye, Mr. War, quote, the world was never more in need of songs for peace than it is today, And Ernie Lieberman has come up with a hatful on this release. And it's been called a landmark album of peace songs. Uh, What what year was uh, Goodbye, Mr. War, Ernie?
8: I think that was 1954. 54, 54, 55, something like that.
1: Why you walking by my side, Mr. War? Gonna take me for a ride, Mr. War. Oh, the night is like a song, and I'm gay and young and strong. And my honey should be walking here, not you. Yeah, the
8: peace. Peace movement was uh, was very important, and the idea of peace was uh, you know real. The idea of not killing people. You know there was a mm-hmm. there's a great pacifist element, which is a contradiction to the revolutionary element, which is anything but pacifist.
2: Mm-hmm.
8: Uh, but there was a great uh, feeling of uh, doing the right thing by being for peace mm-hmm. instead of killing, mm-hmm. and uh, instead of war. Goodbye, Mister War came from a, a group, a whole group of songs I had. Learned over the years and it's sung in different ways, and I put them together in one unified album about that was peace songs, but uh, they'd appeared at different times in different places. So some were uh, songs from uh, from the U.S. and some were songs from different countries like uh, England and uh, China and. France and so on. What you
1: asking me to give? I ain't had a chance to live. And my honey should be standing here, not you. Are you choking out my breath, Mr. War? With your clammy kiss of death, Mr. War? All oh, the night is like a song And I'm gay and young and strong And my honey should be kissing me Not you, and my honey, should be kissing me, not you, Mr. War, not
0: you. Hmm. What was your favorite cut off the album?
8: Oh, that's a hard
0: one. (laughs) Surely somebody's asked you before.
8: uh, I had sung the Spring Song for years, which Hmm. was a song by Earl Robinson and John Latouche. And um uh, you
3: known for
8: that. And the spring song was a you know, song I had sung. so uh, you know, in a way that triggered the whole album, I wonder, will there be a war this spring? The way it started.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Oh, I wonder, will there be a war this spring? Will we be fighting while the robins sing? Will bayonets be bristling and bullets to the whistling When the world is all in bloom in the spring? Can it be that we'll be drilling in the spring? Can it be that we'll be killing when it's spring? Oh, I'd rather take it easy, give that other guy a breezy, a bright and cheery howdy in the spring. Oh, is that a time for dying when it's spring, and for children to be crying in the spring? When in the park on Sunday I'd like to know that Monday Will be just another day in the spring
0: Um, Do either of you have anything in particular that you want to to focus on? Please go ahead.
7: I I was just going to follow up and say I think one of the biggest ironies of all is that um, people's songs and all the other Groups, the the groups of singers at the time started out by saying they didn't like, they wanted to give an alternative to popular music. Mm. That was all about love songs and June Moon Croon, as they called it. Um, So for them, the songs were initially movement songs, but I think what they did in the long run was make it possible for popular music to take on serious issues. That, that's sort of the connection between the old left and the new left hmm. through the music. And the idea that you could sing these songs and now be heard on the radio and records that millions of people were going to buy was astounding to them. Yeah, I, I don't think Pete really realized what a,
8: a tremendous uh, change had occurred in American culture that he was helped, helped uh, accomplish. And uh, he missed that. Uh, the big transition, you could not hear a song with any political content on the radio and on television at that time. Uh, any, anything like that. And the record companies hardly made it. Only a few uh, small companies put these songs out. But uh, after, you could, uh, you know, afterward, it was it was an accepted part of our culture and still is. You can do political
2: songs they
4: have to be popular it was back in 1942 I was a member of a good platoon we were on maneuvers in Louisiana one night by the light of the moon the captain told us to ford a river that's how it all begun we were knee deep in the
0: big muddy the big fool says to push on It's time for our last break. This is Waist Deep in the Big muddy. Pete Seeger's controversial song of protest against the Vietnam War. Pete Seeger's sticky reputation when we return.
4: Sergeant, go on, I fought at this river about a mile above this place. It'll be a little soggy, but just keep slogging. We'll soon be on dry ground. We were waist deep in the big muddy. The big fool says to push on. sergeant said sir with all this equipment no man will be able to swim sergeant don't be a nervous nelly the captain said to him all we need is a little determination men follow me i'll lead on we were neck deep in the big muddy the big fools has to push on all at once the moon clouded over we heard a gurgling cry a few seconds later the captain's helmet was all that floated by the sergeant said turn around men i'm in charge from now on and we just made it out of the big muddy with the captain dead and gone We stripped and dived and found his body stuck in the old quicksand I guess he didn't know that the water was deeper than the place he'd once before been Another stream had joined the big muddy about a half mile from where we'd gone We were lucky to escape from the big muddy when the big fool said
0: to push on Welcome back. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. For our final segment, Gary Fine joins us to talk about the way Pete Seeger came back from the communist taint. He's the author of Sticky Reputations, the politics of collective memory in mid-century America. Ron Cohen locates us in Pete Seeger's long life one last time, and I'll read Pete's advice to his nephew about joining up for war.
4: Waist deep in the big muddy, the big fool says to push on. Waist deep in the big muddy, the big fool says to push on. Waist deep, neck deep, soon even a tall man will be over his head where. Waist deep in the big muddy, the big fool says to push on. And then by the late 60s, he
3: gets a new idea, which was the environment. He's mm-hmm. been involved with uh, organized labor, the peace movement, civil rights. Huge in civil rights and civil rights movement. Uh, in the 60s. But he gets a new thought, which wasn't a a big thing then, which was the environment. And he has a house which is on um, the Hudson River uh, up from New York City, Beacon, New York. And he's looking at the river and the river is a filthy mess, garbage in it and everything. Can't swim in it. So he gets the idea to build a sloop, which is going to be the sloop Clearwater, which was a a, a boat that uh, traveled on the Hudson in the 19th century. So he has a shipbuilding company in Maine to construct a 19th century sloop that comes to New York City. They're going to promote cleaning up the Hudson River as part of the larger environmental movement. Mm-hmm. And people thought that he was crazy. And it worked. It, it, and he had uh, amazing people working on it. They did concerts on the sloop, uh, a dock near where he lived in Beacon. And they began to have uh, festivals and water campaigns and this spread around the country too. Other people tried this sort of thing. And so that's still going. And finally, he's back on TV in the late 60s. The Smothers Brothers decided, because of their politics, to bring him on their very popular show, the Smothers Brothers show, in the late 60s. But he had one song, uh, Waist Deep in the Big Muddy, which was uh, a song about the Vietnam War criticizing president johnson well they, they uh, he, he performed it but the show was taped and the censors cut it out hmm. it was too political right and the smothers brothers hit the roof on that one mm-hmm. and the next year they brought him back and they did allow him to sing waist deep in the Big muddy so he's always challenging the establishment
4: You know, I never do two programs alike, and I'm surprised this one has gone over time. It was supposed to end about ten minutes ago. But this song was written a few months ago by a young man, about 23 years old, named Tom Paxton. We'll dedicate it not just to the children, but to the teachers in the audience. What did you learn in school today, dear little boy of mine? I learned our government must be strong. It's always right and never wrong. Our leaders are the finest
0: men and we Sieger, them again in the world. From Pete Seeger, in his own words. From a letter today. to Nick Seeger, Pete's nephew, dated June 9, 1967. Dear Nicky, I had looked forward to seeing you this month, and I'm sorry to hear that you won't be coming up. But I've been told that you want to join the Army or Navy and do your part to help your country. Now, you can tear up this letter if you want and not bother answering. I'm not your father, nor your mother, nor am I your age. But because I like you, I write you. America needs brave people in this year of 1967, and I am glad you want to help your country. But I urge that you consider best how to do it. I'm not saying I know all the answers. I've made a lot of mistakes in the past and probably will make more mistakes in the future. But as Carl Sandburg says, there is an 11th commandment. Thou shalt not commit nincompoopery. And it is up to us to find out which side the nincompoops are on. Granted, it's pretty hard to tell. Well, Nikki, this is a decision you have to make yourself. Not me, nor your parents, nor your girlfriends, nor boyfriends can make the decision for you. The funny thing is, I think you can learn a hell of a lot from being in the service. You learn discipline. You learn how to get along with people from many different places and different races and walks of life. If I had my way, I would see two years' citizenship service for every boy and girl on the globe. Compulsory for all, rich and poor, student or non-student, stupid or bright, healthy or sick. I would give eight months to your country, eight months to your own city or local region, and eight months to the United Nations to do whatever needs to be done. Whether it is walking a beat to see that somebody doesn't break the peace, or plant trees or build bridges or patrol the coast to prevent smugglers, or doing any kind of dangerous work... The day when human beings are afraid to do dangerous work will be a sad day for mankind. You might consider what Chaka, the Zulu king, said when the Englishman first showed him European rifles. I would be ashamed to use one of those thunder sticks. You can kill a man from a distance. That is a cowardly thing to do. When one of my warriors kills an enemy with his short sword, I know that he has been close enough for that enemy to kill him. And I know that he is a brave man.
4: I learned that war is not so bad. I learned about the great ones we have had. We fought in Germany and in France, and someday I might get my chance. And that's what I learned in school today. That's what I learned in school.
9: The theory of reputational entrepreneurs asks the question, who are the supporters? Who are the opponents? What are their interests in picking a fight, Hmm. in making an argument about reputation. Mm -hmm. And then this gets us to Pete Seeger, and Pete Seeger is kind of a representative of a class of Americans of the 1930s, 1940s, who are um, who were men of the left, typically men, uh, and at that period of time, they they were very controversial. Pete Seeger, you know, in, in particular, was he was a, a Stalinist. He really did not strongly break from the party he, until maybe 1968. You know, his description of Stalin was you know when when he finally came out against Stalin, well after almost everyone else, he said, well, that Stalin's problem was that he was a hard driver. Mm-hmm. Well, for for someone who had committed, arguably committed genocide against the Ukrainians, millions of people killed in the Stalinist regime, to describe Stalin as a hard driver is, you know, is, is a little weak. In, in other words, it, is, it has the potential for delegitimating Seeger as an American hero. Mm -hmm. So then the question is, well, what happens in his later life? What happens in the 1990s when he receives a Kennedy Center Award and a National Merit of Honor um, and, and so forth? Well, why is it that the right, the conservatives of the period cared so little as to not make a strong case. And I think the answer was that in that period of the 90s that, you know, the Cold War had ended. Mm -hmm. It wasn't that the conservatives liked Seeger, you know, any more than they had in the past. It's just that his memory was not worth fighting over for conservatives. Mm. And so there was no opposition. But... There was support for Seeger on the left. It was a way that Bill Clinton could, um, maybe we would even say, appease his progressive supporters.
2: Mm-hmm. You
9: know, using this cultural figure by now, who had a at least a, a generally positive reputation because of his emphasis on the environment and 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 so forth that some of his early positions um, had been forgotten mm-hmm. and thus he becomes this you know he, he is able to be seen as this uh, figure important and positive figure of American culture
0: hmm. so timing is all
9: well timing is a lot <laughs> yes. and, I mean it's it's timing plus. The presence of individuals who see it as in their interest mm. to make that argument.
0: Gotcha, gotcha. You make the point that it's possible the the politics of the time almost required uh, a way to to uh, use use Seeger to help out those particular politicians. You noted Clinton possibly making use of Seeger.
9: Well, Clinton certainly made use of Seeger, mm-hmm. and you know it allowed him to overcome the suspicions that some on the left had of him mm-hmm. as being a new Democrat.
0: Hmm. the kind of conservative Democrat. Right, 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 yeah. Um, so Seeger, I hate to say, becomes irrelevant in that particular game, but Seeger as a politician or a political thinker, Seeger as a, a philosopher, Seeger as someone who has content, we might examine, almost disappears into the icon.
9: Well, that's one of the ironies on mm-hmm. this, that in the glorification of the old left, we have forgotten the things that the old leftists cared about. Mm-hmm. Right? So in making Seeger a hero, we forget about Seeger as a communist. Now, that is, you know, there's that irony there, because he had a set of beliefs that some few Americans still hold mm-hmm. but those beliefs have been erased mm. you know, all the uh, idealism of the American Communist Party mm-hmm. has been erased in the name of making Seeger a generic American hero right you know a, a person who cares only about cleaning up the Hudson River mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know the clear water right. So forth, and who cares about uh, peace? Um, and in doing that, we have forgotten the other things that Seeker cared about and fought for. Hmm. Now, some of them we may not agree with anymore, but but we have forgotten them in the in the transformation of Pete Seeker into uh, a uh, a safe mm-hmm.
0: figure, mm-hmm.
9: non-dangerous. Yeah. And, controversial. yeah,
0: and it's it, it didn't hurt that he was quite old.
9: Oh, well, that, that's right. And he was, in his own way, if I can use the term cute, <laughs> was, uh, grandfatherly. Or,
0: grandfatherly, yes, yes. Or whatever yes, yes, whatever yes, yes, term yeah. we would
9: use for him. <laughs> yes. uh, you know, he's quite, I mean, he is quite charming. Yes, and yes. I, you know, I love his folk music.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
9: And, uh, you know, I, I think of his... <laughs> politics is being very complex mm-hmm. and uh you know he, early in his career he wrote this this song um when there was the uh, you know Nazi Soviet pact mm-hmm. back in 1939 mm-hmm. and it was a song about you know American you know not coming you know not aiding mm-hmm. the uh, the allies against the the Nazi regime because the Soviets were on their side.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, the uh, anti-FDR song. That's right. Yeah, 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 It
9: only lasted till forty-one when when the the pact broke up. But right. it, you know, it's it's revealing of the complexities of, of Pete Seeger's reputation. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a, it's a problem that people who live a long time right. often have that right. they they become very different.
0: People. It's a hard one, um, you know, to, to think about, I, I suppose, as much national figures or figures that we give such prominence to, how they, how they have meaning for us and why, why, we, why we need to have them have meaning. We shall
4: overcome some.
0: That's it for our show, Pete Seeger, plain and complicated. Happy Independence Day. We'll close with We Shall Overcome, the 60s civil rights anthem, and surely a song that so many of us know and associate with Pete Seeger. Of course, this is as complicated as anything that seems plain when it comes to Seeger. He didn't write this song, but he did apparently change it from We Will to We Shall and added some verses. The rights to the song are held by multiple parties. My thanks today to Ron Cohen, Rob Rosenthal, Lita Schubert, Robbie and Ernie Lieberman, and Gary Fine. It was an education. And thanks to you for listening. A reminder that you can find this program along with other interchange programs available for podcast at our website, wfhb.org news slash interchange. Feel free to send us an email also. Our address is interchange at wfhb.org. I'm Doug Storm. I produce Interchange. Rob Schoon is assistant producer and executive producer is Joe Crawford. Stay tuned for the Jazz Menagerie coming up next on your community radio station, WFHB.
2: Sunday time.